I thank you for the honor of uh, being able to just be on this pulpit, Lord, and to bring this word that you have, Father. Right now, Lord, I yield my tongue to you. I ask you to speak through me. I ask you to keep me from uh, speaking anything of myself, Lord, and let this be your word for your people for this season, Lord. I thank you right now that you help uh, those that are listening to this now and those that will listen to this through the live stream or through a recording, Father, to receive everything that you have for them from this. Let it get deep down into our soul. Let us learn from those that have gone before us in the faith, Father, and let us let us start where they left off. Let us start, Father, where they stopped so that we don't have to retake that ground. We thank you for this, Lord, and just ask that you be with us. Help us to be uh, to pay attention and to be attuned with your spirit tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. So tonight we are going to be talking about Peter Cartwright. And uh, Peter was known as the pistol-toting evangelist. So uh, just by that nickname, you, uh, you know that, that the, you know, it's going to be an interesting, interesting guy, interesting life. So uh, he was also known as the backwoods preacher or the Kentucky boy. So, uh, you know, growing up in Cincinnati, which is right on the border between Ohio and, and Kentucky, this, uh, this guy wasn't too far from my, uh, my home stomping grounds just a couple hundred years before I was there. So, uh, Peter uh, Cartwright's motto that he lived by was, love everyone and fear no man. And, uh, you know, that's something that we could all, we could all live by. I mean, we're, we know that we're not, we're not called to, to impress those that are around us, right? Our lives are to be surrendered to the Lord. And, and Peter Cartwright got that. And he didn't necessarily start off that way. Pastor kind of talked earlier, his, uh, his younger years in life, uh, he wasn't living for the Lord. You know, he had a time where he was, uh, he was gambling. There were times he did horse races. Um, but at some point, the Lord came and called him. And at that moment, everything changed. And then for the next almost 70 years, um, he had a, a circuit ministry, like we learned about before with the Methodist circuit riders, and uh, just affected the lives of tens of thousands of people. So we're going to learn about him tonight. Uh, for what does a what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That was one of Peter Cartwright's favorite verses, and uh, we'll talk a little bit later. Uh, there's a an interesting story where he is actually using that verse, and um, give me just a second, you guys. So he was using that verse, and Andrew Jackson, who at the time was a, a great general and later became president of the United States, uh, came into his service. Uh, and there's a, there's a funny story that we'll get to a little later on that. So guys, I started off, I said, tough times call for tough men. And the time that Peter Cartwright lived uh, was was back af- right after the American Revolution, but there was still a lot of warring going on. Uh, the colonists were moving west uh, over, you know, into the Kentucky and Ohio Valley area. Uh, there were a lot of uh, fights and squabbles back and forth with the Native Americans. Um, and this is the time he grew up in. And his family didn't grow up on the East Coast in any of the established cities. In fact, when he was born, his mom was actually hiding in a uh, dense 
this cane patch because there were a Native American Indian tribe was attacking their village. And literally, if she had been found, she would have been killed. So she, here she is. Can you imagine ladies trying to give birth and staying quiet enough that you don't have the uh, the Indians find you? And and that's what that's what he was born into. So he was born into the into the frontier. He grew up Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, and then eventually moved to Illinois. Um, while their family was moving from Virginia to uh, Kentucky. Uh, they, they they traveled in big groups, so there a lot of the families would get together with their horses, and then they would hire young men that were wet, that were armed to travel with them and protect them from the the Indians. Um, so this group of families is going from Virginia to Kentucky, and they go to camp one night, and they and they all the women and the children and uh, some of the men go to sleep, and the other men have to stand guard around the camp and, and keep them safe. So Peter's dad is actually one of the ones assigned that night as a sentry or as a guard and he's out there and it's it's dark they don't not all of them have lanterns and he hears something rustling in the in the forest beside him and he said it sounds to him like a pig but he knows that none of the families that were with him have brought it had brought any pigs with them so he hears it again and he just turns and shoots in that direction and that the gun going off you know it rouses everyone in the camp they all wake up he goes back to the camp and, and he's like i heard something i shot it and, and they're like you just wanted to come back you you didn't want to be out out there by yourself and they said no let's go look and uh so he takes a lantern and he goes out there and where he had shot they found uh an indian brave which is a young warrior uh about 10 about 10 feet from where he was standing guard and the indian had a tomahawk in one hand a rifle in the other and when uh, peter's dad had shot him it caught him right right on the forehead right between the eyes and uh so, I mean, that again, I just I want you guys to understand the time frame he grew up. Because when I say tough times call for tough men, you know, this wasn't, we, we talk about going out and, and witnessing and, you know, sometimes people aren't real nice to you. This wasn't, that, that's not the tough times we're talking about. I mean, these are, these are life and death situations every day. You, you wander off a little bit too far from where your protected homestead is and you could end up dead. And, and that's what he grew up in. Uh, later in that same trip, the group camped near um, a place called Camp Orchard. This was a fort that the colonists had built. Um, and right before they got there, it was late at night, and part of the group decided they were going to go ahead and push through and make it all the way to the camp. Some of the other families, seven of them, decided we're going to camp here. And uh, they said, we're close enough to the camp that no one's going to mess with us. We'll spend the night here and go the rest of the way in the morning. Of that group of seven families, only one man survived. The Indians attacked them that night. They said that man came to the the, the camp uh, in the middle of the night screaming. He was barefoot, and he was the only one that escaped from that. And I, t- I say that, guys, just because I, I want you to understand. You know, he lived in a in a violent place. I mean, the frontiers of of America. It was the wild, wild west. I mean, it was you. You know, when we say he's a pistol-toting evangelist, he wasn't carrying that pistol around for show. A lot of times it was because it was the difference between whether he was going to live or die, and he had it with him. So, One of the scriptures it talks about, guys, um, says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth, suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Matthew eleven twelve. And this was always one that it honestly, it, I hadn't done a whole lot of study on it, but it was one that surprised me because I read it to say that um, that 
we were suffering violence and that we as Christians would then take the kingdom by force. And, and if you study the scripture out, that's not, that's not what it says. I, I did some study on it in both the, the Greek. Uh, and what, it, what it's saying is, in the days of John the Baptist um, in, until now, the kingdom of heaven, which is basically true Christians, right? The, the kingdom, those that are seeking the Lord's will, there's being violence brought against us. The violent take it by force is talking about those that are oppressing, oppressing the Christians. And back in the days of John the Baptist, uh, it was the Pharisees. Uh, Pastor Scott has taught us before that the lineage, if you follow the lineage, John the Baptist should have truly been the high priest of Israel um, at that time. He should have been the high priest in the temple. But because of political maneuverings and because of the way things worked then, the Pharisees uh, held that held that position. And they, they did that by a show of force. If you look at, um, so you have someone that comes against what they're saying, right? Like John the Baptist or Jesus. How did they handle Jesus? They plotted against him. They they eventually murdered him, right? And that's that's what it meant when it says the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force. If you look at Peter Cartwright's days, he lived out in the in the, as a frontiersman. He lived out there was the Orthodox Church, which was um, a little more established, a little more traditional, um, and and they they didn't like what was happening with the the Methodists, which and it sounds funny, but at that time the what the Holy Spirit was doing through the Methodist Church and the 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 um the things that we saw at like Cambridge Revival and the camp meetings that we talked about before. Um, he also, he dealt a lot with uh, atheist and different deist, universalist, uh, Unitarianism, different cults that were coming up. So these were all things that he faced in that time um, and those people would come against him, not to mention just those in the world, right? Those that weren't part of a religion, but the that were, uh, as I mentioned, he lived in a, a rough area. Uh, if you remember that part of Kentucky that the Cambridge Revival took place in was very near a place called Rogues Harbor, and that was basically a place that was known for people that were in trouble with the law on the East Coast, and they moved west. And and, the, and you know, again, that's where he was. That was where he was ministering and where he grew up. Um, if you look at today. Um, you know, look at the news. Look at what's going on with ISIS, right? Look at the the Christians that are being beheaded, those that are being forced out of their homes. Uh, look to some of the foreign governments. You know, uh, Wendy was telling me she's reading a, a book called The Heavenly Man, and it talks about this persecution that a gentleman who uh, lived in China uh, was going it was going through. Um, and then going forward, you know, the the church as we know it, right? They, there's uh, it talks about in the end days that um, a time's coming where people won't endure sound teaching and that they'll have itching ears and accumulate to themselves teachers that will suit their own passions. And we know that the what's known as the Christian church today is going to eventually kind of have a split to those that are truly following the Bible and doing what Jesus says and then those that are really more concern, concerned about the world. They, 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 they cling to a form of Christianity but not a true Christianity. Um, you know, and, and those are things that we've got to look look to in the future. Uh, if you look at ISIS, um, you look at what it says just uh, in the Bible back if you go to Genesis 16 verses 9 through 12. Um, and this is when... Uh, 
Abraham has slept with Hagar, who was his wife's servant, and Hagar's leaving uh, Sarah, and an angel comes and visits her and speaks to her and says, uh, you, shall have a na- you, have, you shall have a son and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. That, that Ishmael, guys, is the forerunner and what eventually became uh, the people that are now, uh, that, that practice Islam, the, the Muslims. So, if, I mean, doesn't that sound like what's going on right now? A wild donkey of a man who's against everyone and whose hand, every, who, everyone's hand is against him. But he also, the angel also tells her that he will increase your descendants so much that they'll be too numerous to count. So uh, what's going on, guys, right now is something that the Lord, the Lord knew. The Lord saw ahead of time, and uh, it's something that we're living in. So, from the beginning of time, or from the beginning of the, the church, back John the Baptist, through the time of Peter Cartwright, two hundred years ago, even up until now, um, there's been a persecution against those that are that are truly serving Christ. And and I said, you know, tough times call for tough men. And, and women, I use that that term men uh, very broadly, but that's something that we've got to be prepared for, right? We know that we're coming into a season of revival. We know even now as we're going out on the streets and we're witnessing, we know that the messages that are coming forth from this pulpit, they're not real popular amongst the world, and, it, and there's going to be a time where we're going to need to be prepared to... Um, to have thick skin and to be to understand what your convictions are and be willing to stand up for them in the face of danger coming at you and that's something that as we as we go through this life Peter Cartwright's life is a great example of this and there's many times we're going to talk about many times he had to go through different things and I think it's going to be an encouragement to you guys to hear um, because he's an interesting guy there's things that uh, in his life that you don't see in most men today. You don't see in most Christian men today. One of the things Wendy asked me, I was talking to her about Peter Cartwright on the way over here, and she said, and I was telling her some of the funny stories I'm going to tell you guys here in a little bit, but she asked me, she said, what, what's your favorite thing about Peter Cartwright? And, and I had to stop for a minute, and I had to think, and I said, you know, I said, I think it's the the wildness of him. I said, it's the, you know, if you look at God, you know, our God is not necessarily a tame God. You know, he's not a safe God. I, I think most Christian men today, most men today in general, we're, we're very constrained and, and we're, we're afraid at times to, to push what, what we know to be correct. You know, there's nothing wrong when you understand something to be correct, to, to be bold about it and to understand that. And that was how Peter lived. And, you know, I, I was, it reminded me of something I saw on Facebook the other day where someone was responding to a situation and someone else said, posted WWJD, what would Jesus do? And, and, and then, and, which, you know, okay, uh, some people use that though in a controlling manner. And I love the response that this person said. They said, well, just realize that within the realm of the possibility of what would Jesus do, it does include making a, a cord or a whip out of cords and flipping over the tables and chasing people out of the out of the area if they're you know if they're not respecting the Lord and it, and, it, and you know that kind of resonated with me just in the sense that no we're not called to chase people with whips and cords but 
you know, there is a place for righteous indignation. There is a there is a place for a man to be to to uh, function in that place of like wilderness and a little bit dangerous and a little bit on edge. And that you see through Peter Cartwright's life. Now, what does everything that he did? Does it is it would it have been politically correct? No. And you know, would we today probably do some of the things that he did back then? Probably not. But uh, but you know, I appreciate that about him. I appreciate his genuineness and uh, his his truth that just kind of permeated all the way through him. All right, guys. So, who opposes revival and or revivalist? And as I was reading about Peter Cartwright's life, I kind of looked two things, right? First, spiritually, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then secondly, like the, the from a physical or a natural side. And obviously from a spiritual side, Satan is going to fight against anyone that's truly living their life for Christ. Because we are trying to advance Christ's kingdom. We are trying to advance God's kingdom and his cause. That's in direct opposition of what Satan's trying to do, right? Satan's trying to advance his kingdom. So at that point, if in, in a revival or someone who is a revivalist, you are you are bringing you know you're saying God your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so so Satan is Satan is going to be against that and as we all know you know Satan is a or Satan is a thief that comes to steal to kill and to destroy and I thought it was interesting uh, Pastor Scott mentioned it I said it earlier Peter Cartwright when he was young a young man he wasn't living his life for the Lord he grew up with a mother who was praying for him but he had a dad that kind of enabled him a little bit his dad bought him a really fast horse and he then used that horse to race for money against other other young men um, his dad bought him a pack of cards and he he became very uh, adept at gambling and he said he, he never cheated but he became a very good card player and he would gamble and win a lot of money he got also got into a crowd that liked to go out and drink and, uh, and to dance a lot and and that was the lifestyle that he was living and he was out again on the frontiers wasn't like the law was there every day so he was living a life of gambling, drinking, partying, uh, and, and that was where he was at. When he was 16, he went to a wedding, and back in those days, during weddings and funerals, a lot of times the pastor would go ahead and give some type of a, a sermon to go along with the, with the event, and at this wedding, um, the, whole, the conviction of the Holy Spirit fell on Peter. And, and he kind of, he, he started trying to give up that lifestyle of, of drinking and of gambling. And uh, he went through a period where of like three months where he was really just seeking the Lord. And, and he, was, he was kind of down and depressed. He was discouraged because he didn't feel like he was getting through. And it said that he, he was getting to a point where he felt like he was, he was starting to understand who Christ was and how he could be his Savior and how he could be... Um, he could be the, the Lord of his life. Uh, it says, and I, I put this here for you, I could almost lay hold of my Savior and realize a recognized God. All of a sudden, such... And then... And, okay, I'm sorry. So that's where he's at, right? And at that point... Uh, a spirit of fear comes against him. So we talked about Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Here's this young man who I'm sure Satan knew, and I know God knew, life was marked to do great things for the kingdom. And he's about to come into that place of fullness where he receives uh, Jesus as a Savior. It says, All of a sudden, such a fear of the devil fell upon me that it appeared to me that he was surely personally there to seize me and to drag me down to hell, soul and body, and such a horror fell on me. 
So here's this young man. For three months, he's been yearning after seeking after God, asking for salvation, and and he feels like he's nearing it. And what does Satan do? It's just like it's just like when we read about in Revelation 12, where it says the dread dragon with seven heads and seven uh, and ten horns and seven crowns comes and it sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky. And the dragon stood in front of the woman about to give birth, so he could devour the child the moment he was born. Satan always tries to kill kill the, the movement of God, kill the person before it gets started. He doesn't want to wait until he didn't want to wait until Peter Cartwright was fully mature in Christ and doing great things. He wanted to take him out ahead of time. And that's what he was trying to do here. He was trying to discourage him to keep him from getting saved. If you look at the life of Jesus, right? They tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Thankfully the three wise men realized it and didn't tell them where he was. Same with Moses, right? They tried to kill Moses ahead of time. So a lot of times these great men and women of God they, they're gonna, Satan's going to try to come against them prior to them reaching their fullness and, and, uh, and working truly for what the Lord has for them. So eventually, um, after about another couple months go by, um, Peter actually ends up at a communion service. We studied a couple months ago, guys, about the camp meeting revivals that took place um, in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, at Red River, at the Muddy Rivers, at Gasper River. So he was at a communion service at the Red River, um, and while he's there and he's praying, uh, and his mom's there and she's praying for him, he's on his face and he's crying out, and he says he feels an impression, and he, f- he hears, Thy sins are all forgiven thee. And then he said a, an abundant joy filled his soul, and, the, and a bright flash of light came about him. And he said from that day on, he knew that he was saved, and he never again doubted that where he was going to spend eternity. And that was how he came to know it. So isn't it cool, guys? So at this point, he was, I think he was 16 years old. We studied about the Cane Ridge Revival. We studied about how it was affecting the area around them. This... This was a kid that was not living for God. He was living a life of gambling, of drinking, of partying. Um, but yet the Spirit of God through that Cane Ridge revival started to fall on that land and it convicted him. And for a number of months he struggled with it. And then he finally he gets to a place where he's able to finally receive the Lord. And that changed his life. And from that day forward he was a new creation and he was going out and he was trying to fulfill God's kingdom and, and promote God's kingdom as opposed to uh, how he'd been living previously. All right, so that's the, talked a little bit about what the spiritual side that's going to come against you from, uh, if you're seeking after a revival or you're a revivalist. So from the physical side of things, uh, this is something that Peter actually wrote about those that were at the camp meeting revivals in Kentucky. Um, he said, some sinners mocked, some of the old professors opposed, some of the old starched Presbyterian preachers preached against these exercises. You guys remember the exercises from the- Remember the barking exercise? Yeah. All right. Uh, but, but still the work went on and spread almost in every direction, farthering additional force until our country seemed all coming home to God. How awesome would that be, guys? To, to have a revival right here, right, where everywhere you looked, you saw the Holy Spirit falling and moving in people's lives. You saw people falling under the conviction. You saw them to where it seemed like everywhere you looked, everyone you saw was coming home to God. 
that they were letting go of the idolatrous things of the world. They were leaving behind their false religions. They were letting go of the love of money. They were letting go of the, the fornication and the, the relationships outside of marriage. They were letting go of drinking and smoking and drugs. And they were coming home to God. And this, is, and this is what he saw. But yet, he said, even in the midst of all of that, there were still some that were against it, right? There were the sinners that mocked them. There were the professors that were too smart and too wise of man's knowledge to accept what was going on from God's perspective. Then there were the preachers that were so stuck in their religious rut that they weren't able to recognize what God was doing. So I talked about, uh, give you guys some of the examples out of his life. I think you guys will appreciate these. Some of them are kind of funny. So if we look at the world, right, or just sinners, those that aren't really part of religion. Um, so he had some different experiences throughout his life. The first one I'm going to talk about, when he was, uh, so after he got saved, he tried to enter into a school. Um, he felt it was important for him to learn how to read and to write if he was going to go eventually preach. Um, and at this school, two of his classmates, uh, they used to make fun of, everyone used to make fun of him. They called him the Methodist preacher boy. Um, the, the head of the school there didn't uh, didn't like Methodist. He was a minister, but he said that uh, the only thing he hated worse than hell were Methodist preachers, which as a minister, I don't think that's a good, that's not a, not a healthy uh, healthy spot to be. So they knew what, where Peter was, and everyone kind of made fun of him from that front. Well, these two boys, they came to Peter one day, and they said they wanted to get right with God. And they asked him, they said, will you meet us after school down by the river? and lead us in, in, in a prayer of salvation so we can get ourselves straight with God. And Peter's sitting there, you know, he's not a, he's not a dummy. He's going, something doesn't seem right about this, you know. But, um, but wanting to honor the fact that, you know, if they were serious about this, he didn't want to, he didn't want to dismiss them. So he says, yeah, I'll, I'll meet you down there. But when he gets down there, he realizes something, something's not right. And he looks up, and the two boys, the area where they met at at the river, had a, an embankment that went down like eight feet into a ten-foot pool of water. Um, and the two boys rushed him, and they were trying, they were going to try to throw him into the river. That's why, that's why they had asked him out there. Um, Peter, though, saw one of them, and he was, seems like he's a pretty athletic guy. I guess as the first one approached, he, he used a Fernando move, and he kind of grabbed him and wrestled him and threw him down into the river. And then the second one got to him, and they wrestled, and said so he, he struggled for a while, but then he too, he threw the second guy into the river at that point too. So uh, even though the, these two men of the world had come to, uh, come to try to take him, he, uh, the Lord gave him the victory in that they both ended up in the river. He stayed dry. And uh, I think after, shortly thereafter that, I do think, though, he dropped out of that school. I don't think he felt like that was the place for him to be. So, uh, The next example I was going to give you guys... Um, a heckler during the sermon. So for the, if, if you guys don't know what a heckler is, a heckler is someone that goes and is there just to give you a hard time and to kind of make fun. They, this person wasn't there to receive what the Lord had from them. They were just there to cause trouble. It'd be like if Pastor Scott was up here preaching and, you know, uh, well, who do we say? Brianna started uh, yelling up at him, you know, hey, you know, you're, uh, you got a booger hanging out your nose or something. That, you know, I don't think, I think back in Peter Cartwright's day, he might have been yelling something a little more vulgar than that. But this gentleman wouldn't stop. He came, he started, he came to this meeting and he kept yelling and he kept screaming at him and, and he was distracting from the others, right? The other people that were there weren't able to receive what God had for him. Um, 
So finally, this this they call him this thug or this heckler uh, yells up to him that that he's he says he says to Peter Cartwright he says I'm going to whip you, and uh, so at that point Peter Cartwright puts his Bible down, says to the congregation, "Can you excuse me for a few minutes?" And he he, he invites the gentleman, the heckler, to join him out in the woods. So he he heads out, and um, evidently they get out there, and uh, Peter Cartwright laid a pretty good whooping on him. They said he was. They said they were raining fists down on him, and he didn't stop until the man agreed to repent and ask forgiveness for his sins. So once the man agreed that he would uh, repent, Peter picked him back up and sent him to what he called the Amen Corner. That's where those that were seeking salvation in the uh, in the revival meeting, they went. So after he was done beating him up, he sent him over to the Amen Corner so that the gentleman could get right with God. He came back up to the pulpit. He said, let me continue on. And he finished uh, He finished his sermon. So I thought, uh, thought you guys would appreciate that. So... Um, if you ever see Pastor Scott ask you outside, I hope you guys were behaving. But yeah. This next one's pretty good, too. Um, so back in the camp, revi- camp meeting days, uh, guys, if you remember, they were outside. And if you remember, we talked about thousands of people would come together. And there sometimes were 5, 10, 15, uh, 20, 30 preachers that were preaching to these thousands of people out in, like, out in the fields or under these tents that they built. Well, a lot of... Uh, let's say, worldly people, those that weren't there for that, would come because you had so many tens of thousands of people. They would come and they would stay on the outskirts of camp. So they would they would park their wagons like a tenth of a mile off or a quarter of a mile off. And they would sell cigarettes and they would sell whiskey and they'd do all these different things. Well, obviously, as a preacher of God, that, that was kind of annoying because you've got these, you've got people that are coming that are trying to get right with God and yet you've got this, this fringe element out here of the world that's basically trying to pull them back in. Uh, well, there are a couple different stories of how, how Peter dealt with these, these guys, these whiskey sellers or moonshine sellers. Uh, I picked my favorite, and I thought I would share it with you. So one night after, uh, after these, after these uh, whiskey-drinking rabble-rousers, as we'll call them, uh, after they got drunk, uh, Peter snuck over to their wagon, and he stole their kegs of whiskey. So and he brings them back to his his tent and he he you know he keeps them there and I guess they wake up the next morning and they're like our our whiskey's gone and you know this is what they sold to make money this is what they drank that's how they got you know they got drunk and and caused all this trouble and uh, obviously Peter knew that and he knew what he was doing well they figured out it was him that took it because he he kind of developed a reputation you know after he took one guy out and beat him and then uh, done some other things like this that he was he was a pastor that wasn't afraid to stand up to those that weren't going to be behave. So they sent word through someone to him and said, if, if you don't give us our whiskey back by the time night falls tonight, we're going to stone your tent tonight. So uh, Peter hears this and he sends, no, he sends word back, bring it on. You know, he's like, God's with me. So um, he goes, uh, but this is what I love about him. This, this, guy was, this guy was very smart. He takes off all his nice preaching clothes, right? He gets out of his, his good stuff. He puts on I don't know what it was, but let's say maybe some overalls, right? He gets a little grungy. He says he, he said he put on a straw hat and he kind of got himself he got himself sullied up a little bit. And uh, he sneaks out and he goes over to where all these uh, out to the edge of camp where all the whisk guys drinking whiskey are, and he mixes in with them and he pretends like he's been drinking. So he's like, 
hey guys, that, uh, yeah, we're going to get them tonight. We're going to show that pastor. And you know, little do they know, he is the pastor that they're supposed to be going to stone tonight. And uh, it, so nightfall's coming, and they all go down to the creek because they got to get their stones that they're going to throw at the pastor. And it said he, he specifically picked up a bunch of really small stones and pebbles and put as many as he could in his pockets. And uh, it gets dark, and they all, the, you know, group of like 15 or 20 of them go, uh, and they go back to his tent, and they're getting ready to, uh, they're getting ready to start throwing their big rocks at the, past the, at the pastor's tent. And all of a sudden, uh, Cartwright takes his handful of rocks out, and it's, it's dark out, right? They can't really see each other. Well, he starts throwing them at all the guys around, and the guy, so the guys start getting hit, and then, he, and then he starts yelling, officer, officer, they're over here, take them, take them. And then he goes a couple feet over, and he goes, officer, they're here, take them, take them. So he makes all of these people, it's just him, he makes all these people think that he's got the law there, and he's got these police officers there to arrest them. So all of these guys take off running through the woods, and they said they, they get in their, their wagons and, and head off, and they never saw him again. And yet, here he was, one guy with some pebbles that, uh, that chased off like 15 of them. So, um, again, guys, this is, you know, you got to be creative. He lived in a day where, you know, there wasn't necessarily the police force there to, to deal with these guys, and you had to figure out how to deal with them yourself. There's another story I don't have on here, but um, another time he, he took, he, he snuck over and stole the whiskey um, from these people, and the people that were the whiskey drinkers actually had the deputy officer or sheriff of that town as part of them. So he came, the sheriff came to arrest him for stealing the stuff, and it turns out uh, he, he basically, he, the sheriff said something about, if you don't give it back to me, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you. And I guess Peter Cartwright said, well, it better be a good lick because, you know, I got the next one. And uh, then some other people came, and they ended up, the sheriff ends up getting taken to the court and the magistrate, and there's like 15 of the, the whiskey people and the sheriff that get arrested at that point. So just some interesting stories, and, you know, you can picture back at that time would have been, would have been uh, not, not exactly what we see today, uh, but a very interesting the last story here just about the world and sinners coming against the, the move of God and against Peter as a revivalist. And guys, I tell you these stories because I want you to take faith and look at what he faced, right? And look at what we may have to face. And he, we have a lot more going for us now today in, in, what, in the society that we live in than what he did. Yet the Lord always gave him a way through this. And he gave him victory in these situations, even when it looked like he was outnumbered 15 to 1, right? Um, so this last one, though, uh, crippled man along the roadside. So I told you that uh, he was a Methodist circuit rider. He rode, he rode for 67 years, guys. Can you, think, can you imagine that? 67 years on a horseback and I'll talk a little bit later about kind of what that lifestyle what that meant and we we studied earlier the life of like Francis Asbury and some of those other guys so you guys have a little bit of an idea but um, I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse it's not the most pleasant thing I mean it's fun but it physically jars you I can't imagine that doing that for 67 years all right so uh Anyway, back to the story. <laughs> Cartwright and a fellow minister, uh, Brother Walker, they were traveling. They were out on one of these these circuit tours. And they come across a man um, who's up ahead of them, and he's crossing the road. And he has a huge stick, and he's using it as a crutch. 
So you look at him, and from the natural, it looks like he's a, he's a crippled man. And, and uh, as they come up close to him, the man yells out to him, and they say, he says, can you give me a ride? He said, I don't know that my strength, that I'm going to make it up to the next town. Can you give me a ride a little way up? And, and you know, your natural compassion is, yeah, we want to help this man. And Brother Walker says, oh, yes. And he starts to, he starts to get down off of his horse. And at that time, uh, by, I'm sure by the unction of the Holy Spirit, Peter felt, uh, felt a hesitation. And, and he, he, he yelled to Brother Walker, he said, keep your horse, meaning stay up on your horse. He says, we're a long way from home. We have a long journey before us. Under such circumstances, trust no man. And I'm sure by that he meant no unknown man, someone you don't know. Um, and they said, so they, so Brother Walker stays on his horse, and they go about a hundred yards farther up the trail. They pass the man, right? And the crippled man should be behind them, right? He's barely moving with his cane. And he said, uh, Peter, Peter said that all of a sudden his horse startled. Uh, which, if you've ever, again, if you've been on a horse, when a horse startles, they, they kind of they they hear things better than we do. They sense things a lot of times. And Peter turns to see what has startled him, and he sees the what they thought was the crippled man running at him at full speed with that stick in hand. And they said, and Peter described him as fleet as a deer. So he obviously wasn't crippled. I mean, his plan was to to attack these two ministers, probably to take their horses. So at that. And guys, what was uh, what was Peter's nickname? Do you remember? The pistol-toting evangelist. So at that, Peter turns his horse. He pulls out his pistol, and you know that guy turned up real quick and uh, went in, went into the woods. And that was the uh, that was the last they saw of him. So again, the Lord uh, Lord delivered him uh, this time through uh, through the show of the pistol. So. Amen, that's right. You know, I, I think Peter Cartwright might have fit in all right in Texas. You know, he spent most of his life in Kentucky and in Illinois, but I think he would have done all right down here, so. Yeah, that's right. He did have the concealed handgun. Um, so, guys, that was, we talked a little bit about kind of how the world and sinners came against uh, against the man of God and the revivalist. Uh, next, we'll look at kind of the academia, world of academia, philosophers and, and cults, and I kind of grouped them together. Um, so, they had a, a man that, that claimed to be a Jewish man, and he he approached uh, Peter and another group of young men who were praying, and they're praying, and these young men were praying earnestly to Jesus, and he came up to them and told them to stop. He said, you're upset in God. And they said, what do you mean? And they said, it's idol-, he said, it's idolatry to pray to, to pray to Jesus Christ. And obviously, if he truly was a Jew, he probably did believe that because he didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. Um, but Peter was bothered, obviously bothered by this. And he, he challenged the, the Jewish man. He said, do you believe in God? And the Jewish man said, of course I do. And he said, do you believe that God hears your prayers? And the man said, yes, I do. He said, do you believe he'll answer your prayers if what you pray, pray of him is, is right? And the man said, of course he will. And Peter said, okay, then I, I challenge you. I want you to pray to your God right now. And if, it, if this is not right and we're not to pray to Jesus, then you have, him make, you have him stop us. But if it is correct, then he can't stop us. And no, nothing, you know, 
nothing will be able to stop us. Uh, he said that all of hell couldn't stop us is basically what he said. And uh, so the Jewish man all of a sudden gets real nervous looking. And he says he, he gets down and he starts to pray. He's like, Father God. And, uh, and Peter and his friends started praying, you know, Jesus, we honor you. We love you. And they started praying in Jesus' name. And the man started again. And then the man couldn't take it. And he just got up and, and ran off and left. And it was like he knew he knew that it wasn't it wasn't going to do anything. So uh, that was the first kind of the first one. Um, <laughs> this was kind of interesting. So again, Peter grew up in Kentucky. Um, and Kentucky at that point, guys, was more the south part of the U- was considered southern U.S. And he got a assignment as part of being a Methodist preacher to go up to Ohio to the Yankees. Did you guys know I'm a Yankee? You guys have been kind to me. You've accepted me in, even though. Um, and uh, Peter looked, and he goes, I, he didn't want to go. He said, you know, up there they had universalism, unitarianism, deism. But we talk, I talked to you before, guys, that Francis Asbury really was kind of the father of the, of the Methodist people there. And so he was kind of the highest of highs within, you know. It would be like if you went to work, and the CEO or the president of your company came and said something to you. And, and that's kind of how Francis Asbury was within, uh, within this. And Francis Asbury comes up to him and says, he says, uh, Oh no, son, you must go. He says, it will make a man of you. Oh, you've got the CEO, the president, you know, the archbishop, the elder of your, of your, uh, of your religion that is basically just throwing the man card down on him, right? He says, you, you've got to go. This is going to be what makes you a man. So at that, uh, Cartwright decides he'll go up there. And he said it was actually one of the most fruitful times in his life because as he had to debate and to come against these universalists and the unitarianists and the deists, he had to. He really had to know the Word of God to be able to come against them and to to debate them. Uh, so he really had to pour into the Bible and learn the Bible and understand. And it said it was one of for him. It was one of the most fruitful times in his life with the Lord because he was really forced to go deep in his study of the Bible and to spend time with the Lord. So that when he got into these debates with the other uh, people of other religions, he was able to to be successful in them and, and to win people to Christ. The Shakers. I thought this was interesting. Uh, he had he had been in an area and he had, uh, as a circuit rider. And when he left, a lot of the people were practicing Methodist. And when he comes back, this uh, they're now practicing the Shaker religion. And there's a lady there named Mother Anne who had come and claimed to be the embodiment of the returned Christ. So basically, she was saying she was Christ come back. And I'm going, hmm, pretty sure the Bible says we're going to know when he comes back. But, uh, so I, I don't think it took, uh, I don't think it took very long for, uh, for Peter to go ahead and, and debunk that one. They said he got all the people there back on the right path. And, right, and sometimes we need that, right? People start to stray off a little bit. You got to have someone to kind of knock you back into, uh, into the will of God and into his truth. And then finally, um, the Mormons. So he had an encounter with Joseph Smith, who was the founder of the Mormon religion. And um, I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk actually, guys, to you about that a little later. We're going to talk about uh, later on. I talk about how the strength of character that he had, and I'm going to I'm going to save that one for then to talk about. 
All right, so we've talked about how in the natural, the physical, you're going to have people come against you from a worldly perspective, right? Those that are sinners. You're going to have those come against you from the academic, from the philosophers, from the cults. So they're all going to come against what God's trying to do from the revival perspective. And, and then consequently what you're doing because you're trying to allow God to move through you in that, that act of revival. Um, so the last group is the religious or the Pharisees. And right, this is a group we know they, they don't like when God comes uh, when God comes in a manifest way. They like religion. They like the study of the Bible, but they don't like the relationship with, with the Lord. They don't like when the Holy Spirit moves. They, it's, it scares them, I think. So, um, one, of the, one of the things that was uh, kind of said derogatory about the different Methodist uh, circuit riders, it was that they were all um, illiterate. They, didn't, they said they couldn't read. They said basically they were a bunch of just dumb guys is, is in, in uh, kind of a layman's way to put it. And that came about because a lot of these Methodist preachers were people that were saved in revival and they give their life to the Lord and they want to they bring this to others. So they, they didn't have a lot of formal education, right? A lot of the, a lot of the more orthodox people, they would actually go to school for, uh, you know, three, four, five years and get a formal education before they would go and preach. And with the Methodist writers, you wouldn't get that. So they had a educated East Coast preacher, and I'm, I can just see this guy, right? He's all scholarly and dressed up, and he comes and, and he hears about Peter Cartwright, and uh, he challenges them to a debate, and he, he says that he knows that all Methodist preachers are illiterate, ignorant babblers. So he goes, and uh, by this point, Peter's gotten pretty good at debating, right? He's been he spent his time in Ohio debating the Universalist and the Deist and all that. Um, he's a, he's a man that's a has very sharp wit and intelligence about him, and uh, this this East Coast preacher decides I'm gonna I'm gonna fool this guy, or I'm gonna make this guy look dumb. I'm gonna ask him a question in Greek. Uh, so he goes ahead and he asks Peter a question in Greek. And Peter Peter didn't know Greek, right? I mean, he wasn't formally educated. But what he had picked up along the ways, he he picked up some German. And I read a couple different things. One, I know, I know, like from growing up in Cincinnati, that area had a heavy German influence. So I read that he picked some of it up there. And then also, I heard his mother taught him some German. So this this preacher asked him the question in Greek. Peter doesn't know it, but he's not going to let on that he doesn't know it. So he turns and he answers back in German. I don't know what he said, but at that point, the uh, the educated East Coast preacher, not knowing German and not knowing Hebrew, he thought that Peter had answered him back in Hebrew. And now he's embarrassed because he's like, oh man, I'm trying to make this guy look bad. I'm asking him a question in Greek. He knows Hebrew. So the, the East Coast preacher East Coast preacher steps back. I'm sure his face is all red. And he goes, he goes I finally met the first educated Methodist preacher. And, uh, and he, and he, he did declares Peter the winner of the debate. And here, you know, who knows what Peter said, you know, I, I like kielbasa, I don't know, you know, whatever he said in German. But, uh, so I, I, again, though, I thought, guys, it reminded me of the scripture, the, first, the scripture in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. but cho- God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It wasn't just like God, you know, here's this guy all haughty and proud that's supposed to be representing his kingdom, trying to embarrass another preacher of his kingdom. And uh, and yet it, the tables get completely flipped and turned on them. So, all right. 
So I mentioned earlier, guys, that a lot of times during weddings and funerals back in that day, uh, a minister was asked to preach. And I think it's probably because they, you know, a lot of times they didn't even meet every Sunday for church and things. These, these circuit riders would ride and they'd only be in town every so often. So whenever they did get the people together, they wanted to give them, they wanted to give them a word. And Peter had gotten asked to conduct a funeral service. And the funeral service took place in this old Baptist meeting house. And while he was there, he conducts the funeral service. And he starts to give a word. And the Holy Spirit falls. And people begin weeping and, and crying. Um, you know, they're, they're repenting of their sin. And 23 people give their lives to, to Christ that night. Um, but being that it was in the Baptist meeting house, and the local Baptist minister was there... Peter, Peter wanted these people to be, the, these converts, he wanted them to be part of the Methodist church. But the Baptist preacher that was there wanted them to be part of the Baptist church. So, um, and again, you know, Peter, some of his things that he did were maybe a little questionable. So um, he presents himself to the uh, Baptist church as, he says, I want to become part, of, I want to become Baptist. I want to be a membership for, or I want to be a candidate for membership in the Baptist church. And, and he gives them their t- his testimony, and they go, "Okay, it's obvious that you're right with God. Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll accept you as a member in the church." So the next day, they all go down to the river to be baptized, and Peter makes sure that he's first in line. And when he gets up there, and the uh, Baptist pastor is about to um, about to baptize him, he says to him, "He says." I don't feel that I need to be baptized. He says I've already been. He said I've already been baptized by sprinkling of water to the uh, satisfaction of my conscience. Um, which, if you guys know, back in that day, the, the the Baptist one of their main doctrine was to be baptized. It was full immersion. You had to be completely under the water and completely back out of the water. So he basically, while he said he wanted to be a candidate for baptism, he knew he was he was kind of a charade. And uh, when the Baptist pastor said, you can't be a, a member of our church then, Peter then turned to the others behind him and says, it does, and basically was like, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that you have to do that. Why, why is he making us do this? And he takes all 23 of the people and marches them away, and they, they all end up in a Methodist church. He starts a church there, assigns a pastor, and he now has his 23 Methodist people in that little town. So again... Methods a little questionable, maybe, but uh, that was uh, you know he was he was definitely a man of quick wit. So uh, this was something I thought was interesting. He was talking later in life about the Baptists, and this was a quote from him. He says, "Indeed, they made such ado about baptism by immersion, immersion, that the uninformed would suppose that heaven was an island, and that there was no way to get there but by diving or swimming to it." So I just thought that was kind of a funny quote. All right, guys. So, again, what I wanted you to take away from this is, um, you know, Peter was a, a tough man living in a tough time. And where, where we're living right now, the time we're living in, I wouldn't necessarily call this a tough time. But I'm not so sure about what lies ahead of us and what's ahead in our future um, in the sense that I fully trust God that he's going to take care of us and that because we surrender our life to him, that his perfect will is going to come forth. But I think some of the cushiness that maybe we've lived in as Christians as time goes on, we might, that you know, there's a definite possibility that that might, might change. Um, so I want you guys to be 
look at his life and look at what he came through and just realize that even if you are going to go through something, God's going to be there with you and he's going to bring you through it. And nothing goes, nothing come, is going to come against you that doesn't come through his filter first. Um, and then what you're going to be, you're going to come against those in the world that are going to mock you, you know, the sinners. You're going to come against um, those that are in academia and, and different different religions that aren't Christianity, different cults and things of that nature. Uh, and then you're going to have those that are claiming to be Christians, um, and some that probably are but just don't have a full understanding of God, that are also going to come against you. And you need to be secure enough in yourself and understand your identity as a son and as a daughter of Christ that you're, you're able to, to have them come at you, but let that wash off of you, just fall off your back and continue keeping your eyes on Jesus and continue as you go through doing what He's calling you to do and living your life in a way that's going to please Him regardless of whether the world's coming against you, whether different cults are coming against you, or whether the, even the church is coming against you. And how do you do that? you got to be a person of strong character. And some of the things that took place in Peter Cartwright's life really speak to the character of the man and while he, why he was able to face this persecution and face these things coming against him, but yet not really waver away from um, living his life for God. And one of these things, so he had, uh, he had, a, he had quite a few interactions with Andrew Jackson. Um, and guys, Andrew Jackson, at the time he first met him, was a general in the, in the U.S. Army. Um, and later on, he became president of the United States. Uh, so, you know, a pretty powerful man. I mean, this is someone that, you know, typically is used to getting their way. And a, a lot of times in, in the world, right, these type of people, people kind of bow down to and, and, and do whatever they ask of them to do. Um, so here is Andrew Jackson. He comes into a church service that uh, Peter Cartwright is preaching at. And it's not his church. It's not Peter's church, but uh, it's one he's been asked to speak at. It says General Jackson walks up the aisle, and it's such a full house that he just leans on the middle post in the aisle, right? And he says, very gracefully, he just sat there and watched. And uh, it says the preacher who, whose church it actually was came running up to the pulpit because, right, because Peter Cartwright's up there. And it said, whispering a little too loud, he said, General Jackson has come in. General Jackson has come in. So here he is, right? He, obviously his heart is, he's almost in idolatry with General Jackson. He's like, oh, this great man of the world is here in our church. And... Uh, Peter Cartwright says he felt a flash of indignation. He got a little upset at this. He's like, that's just a man. You know, that's, there's, that, that man's, in God's eyes, that man's no different than anyone else. Um, and it says that he purposefully spoke out audibly and loud enough for the congregation to hear, who is General Jackson? Who is General Jackson? If he don't get his soul converted, God will damn him to hell as quickly as he will a guinea-stealing Negro. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that uh, in the day, sitting in that congregation, you know, as, as General Jackson, he probably went, huh, that man, he doesn't really care much about what, uh, you know, who I am or what I am. And, it, and what it did, guys, is everyone else that was there around them, it, it set the field back down. And they said, you're as worthy to God as this man here is. And even though that pastor came in and, and was trying to lod this man up, he was saying, God doesn't see you that way. Any person in here is as worth, his soul is as valuable to God as that man's was. And that's what, that's what uh, 
Peter Cartwright wanted to, to get across to him. And guys, some biblical uh, backing of that, up of that. Uh, Leviticus 19.15 says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the rich. But judge your neighbor fairly. And then Proverbs 19.25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So guys, those are things that we need to understand too. You know, in the world, there's going to be people that the world is going to loft up and is going to hold up high in high esteem that we're not necessarily called to, to hold them to that, high, that same high esteem. Now, there may be things that you respect of them. I mean, a lot of these people that are in these different positions of power, you know, they're either very intelligent or they've done things to get there. They've worked hard to get there. And it's okay to respect that and, and to respect where they're at. But don't, don't let it get to a point of idolatry where you're, where you're almost worshiping the person. Um, and, you know, this verse, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So, interestingly enough, the next morning, uh, Peter Cartwright sees Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was staying in a hotel there in town, and he came out of the hotel right as Mr. Cartwright was walking by. And this is what Andrew Jackson said to him. He said, Mr. Cartwright, you are a man after my own heart. I'm very much surprised at Pastor Mac to think he would suppose that I would be as offended or offended at you. So evidently, after Peter had done this, the pastor of that church came up to Andrew Jackson to apologize to him, right, that, that Peter had said this. Just again, kind of proving that his heart wasn't where it was supposed to be with this man. And, and Andrew Jackson goes on to say, No, sir, I told him that I highly approved of you, and that as a minister of Jesus Christ, you ought to love everybody and fear no mortal man. Isn't that interesting? That ended up being what Andrew or what Peter Cartwright's life motto was: "Love everyone and fear no man." And uh, that's what that's what uh, Andrew Jackson said to him. He says, "I told Pastor Mac that if I had a thousand independent, fearless officers as you are, and as well in a well-drilled army, I could take the whole of England." So here is this man, this general, basically saying, you know. I respect the fact that you called me out where I am. And it was interesting. They talked a lot about Andrew Jackson in this. And they said that he himself was not a righteous man. They said at times in his life he was actually a very wicked man. But he was always very respectful of the Christian religion and of Christian ministers. And not in this book, but another thing I was reading, it talked about how Peter Cartwright was at a gathering and Andrew Jackson was there and a man came up and was hassling it, uh, Peter Cartwright, this, this lawyer was, and Andrew Jackson stepped in and actually kind of put the man in his place. And uh, it was just interesting. I started thinking about today and the political leaders of today and, you know, just the difference of how, you know, here this man was, wasn't even a Christian, but yet he held those ministers in such high esteem and, and valued the, the way they lived their lives and, the, and the, the, the moral fortitude they had in living their life that way. Uh, the next next issue or next opportunity that uh, he had to show the strong character uh, later a little bit later in life Andrew Jackson was heading down it was the war of 1812 and he was heading down to New Orleans to fight a battle and the chaplain that was with his army got sick and he was passing by where uh, 
Peter Cartwright lived, and he recruited him and said, "You need to come and be my chaplain. I need I need a, man, a, a chaplain for my army." So Peter marches with them to New Orleans, and when he gets there, uh, Andrew Jackson tells him, uh, "I want you to go and tell the troops that no man will die before uh, before his time had come, and that they are as safe at the cannon's mouth as they would be anywhere else." And Cartwright looked at him, and he goes, no, I'm not going to preach that. <laughs> That's a lie. He's like, I'm not going to go tell them that they can stand in front of a cannon and that God's going to save them. He said, but I, he said, what I will tell them, he said, is that this war is a justifiable war in that, uh, that they were, they were engaged, and what they were engaged in was a righteous cause. And uh, I guess uh, Andrew Jackson looked at him and said, okay, I guess that'll have to do. And Peter Cartwright looked back at him and said, yeah, that'll have to do. <laughs> so, Again, this man wasn't going to or wasn't going to bow down to the you know the world and what and the and the powerful men of the world. Um, next, again, a next thing that really just showed to me kind of the character of of uh, Peter Cartwright uh, was he, he was very opposed to slavery. And at that time, guys, that was before, um, obviously before slavery was abolished. Um, but in the area he was living in, in Kentucky, uh, slavery was actually still uh, very prevalent. And as an elder in the Methodist Church, uh, a lot of people, a lot of the people that were there were slave owners. And there were times where uh, candidates would come up for approval to become like a, a preacher in the Methodist Church. And one of the tenets of the Methodist Church said that a, a slave owner could not become a preacher. But in the, at that time, a lot, of the, a lot of the church in the South, the Methodist Church in the South, they said, we're ignoring that. Uh, but, but Peter wouldn't do that. He said he, said he felt it was both um, morally, politically, and domestically evil slavery and that he would not allow, while he was in eldership in the area he presided over, there would be no slave owners that would hold a title of a minister in, in the Methodist uh, religion in that area. Which doesn't sound like much to us, right? I mean, that sounds like, okay, yeah, that's that's the way it should be. But back then, guys, that was a big stand. I mean, that was taking a stand against what most of society and what most of the culture believed was the correct thing. Um, and he actually, um, he eventually moved when his daughters started to get to the to a dating age. So whenever that would have been, twelve or thirteen, he actually moved from Kentucky to Illinois at that time um, because he wanted he didn't want his daughters to potentially date the the son of someone that would be a slave owner. Uh, so he moved to Illinois where slavery was actually had already been abolished. It was against the law to own slaves in Illinois, and that's why he picked up and moved his family there, which I thought was interesting. All right. So the next thing we're going to talk about was uh, Peter Cartwright's encounter with Joseph Smith. So um, Joseph Smith, guys, was the founder of the Mormon religion. And um, Joseph tried to convince Peter Cartwright that he should join with him and that together that you know the Mormon religion could sweep up Methodism and that they could basically take over the whole the whole of the world. And I, I got this picture as I'm reading this of uh, remember when Jesus was up on the mountaintop and Satan looked out and said, "See everything before you, you know, you know, de- you know, denounce God and profess me, and, and I'll give you, you know, all that." And it kind of seemed that that was kind of what Joseph Smith was trying to do, and. Uh, 
again, Cartwright guys was this kind of this good old you know Southern boy, kind of backwoods preacher. So he calls uh, he calls Joseph Smith Uncle Joe. He said, uh, he said, Uncle Joe said to me, it was such his pleasure in the high privilege of meeting one of God's noblest creatures, an honest man, and that together we would not only sweep up the Methodist church, but all others, and that, and that I, being Peter Cartwright, would be looked upon as one of the Lord's greatest prophets. And, uh, you know, Peter Cartwright said he let, you know, he, he let Uncle Joe talk for a little while and kind of espouse some of his doctrine. He said he let him have enough doctrine, let him say enough that he was able to kind of hang himself with his own words. And he said it became evident to uh, Uncle Joe that uh, flattery wasn't going to work with him. So he said then, uh, he said Joseph Smith turned from flattery to fear. He said he tried to he tried to make me fearful, and he and he told Peter Cartwright and all the ages of the world, the good and the right thing was always first spoken of as evil, and that it's an awful thing to fight against God. So basically, what he was trying to tell Cartwright was that Mormonism was God's religion, and that he was fighting directly against God. And, and again, Peter Cartwright kind of dismissed that and said, "You know, no, I'm not not buying that argument either." Um, and then he goes he goes on to tell a story of how these Mormon people came to one of his tent meetings, and basically um, they they created or had a false encounter with God where this woman was supposedly struck down and then her husband got her up and she was giving this word of, from God and her husband was going to interpret and and uh, Peter came over and he felt by the Holy Spirit that it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't of God and he called them out on it and then the Lord gave him a word of knowledge and said to the man you've got the markings of one who steals on your back because back in those days if you would steal they would put you up on the post and they'd give you laughs ashes on your back and sure and I guess the man kind of said give me some space give me some space you're crowding me and he took off and sure enough they found out that man even at that revival had been stealing from other people at the revival so so uh, Cartwright is telling this story to Joseph Smith who is getting more and more angry and he said finally his, his indignation towards me boiled over and he actually uh, cursed Peter Cartwright in God's name and he, he said to him I will show you sir he says I will raise up a government in these United States which will overturn the present government and I will raise up a new religion that will overturn every other form of religion in this country I will live and prosper and you will die in your sins and that's what that's what Joseph Smith said to, to Peter Cartwright and Peter Cartwright uh, you know just kind of laughed and said Uncle Joe my Bible tells me that the bloody and the deceit man shall not live out half of his days and I expect the Lord will send the devil after you one of these days and take you out of the way and uh, he, he said they at that point they turned and parted ways and uh, they said within a couple years after that is actually when uh, Joseph Smith had gotten arrested and while he was in jail um, an angry mob actually broke in and killed him while he was in jail um, but it was just it was interesting that you know Joseph Smith tried to curse him um, but we know that in the New Testament, right, that uh, in the Old Testament, that type of stuff might have defiled. But in the New Testament, we as God's righteous ones, by the blood of Jesus, he, he, he said that curse had no, no effect on him. And uh, he, he just kind of continued on and doing what he knew was right for the Lord. All right, guys. So in closing, we, we talked about tough people for tough times. 
We talked about what's going to come against you from a spiritual perspective, from a natural perspective. We talked about needing to be people of integrity and of high character in, in order to uh, to go through that. And when you do all of that, guys, you're going to affect the world around you. You're going to go into a situation that was dark, and you're going to bring light. You're going to go into areas where there's deception, and you're going to be able to speak truth into people's lives. And, and that really is what we're called to do, right? It says we're to be salt on the earth. We're to be light on, in the darkness. And if, if we live our lives in such a way that we're not afraid of things, and as we talked about last time, we're humble. We submit ourselves to God. We have clean hands and a pure heart. And we live the right way. When you go into a situation, God's going to show up. One of these times, uh, Peter Cartwright was out traveling. He was in the Cumberland Mountains. uh, And he was in an area where he said there were no preachers, no ministers there. It was late at night. He He needed to be somewhere else, but he didn't get as far as he wanted to. And he needed to spend the night. And he found... Uh, a house of entertainment. And basically what that was was almost like a hotel. Um, But back in those days, they would have these houses where people would pay for a room. And a lot of times the house would have someone that played piano or someone that played the fiddle to to, to entice you to stay with them as opposed to staying, you know, at the next person down the road. It was late at night. Peter had already been out and traveling. So he stopped by here and he asked the gentleman who owned the house, he said, can I stay with you? He said, you can. He said, but you may not want to stay here, you know, recognize that Peter was a minister, he said, we have a, a dance that's going to go on tonight, and I just don't know, you know, if this is the type of atmosphere you want to be in. So Peter asked him, he said, well, where's the next Where's the next house I could stay in? And it was like another seven miles down the road, and Peter said, I, you know, that's fine. He said, if you take care of my horse, and you promise me they'll just leave me alone, he said, I'll stay here for the night. So the guy said, yeah, I can do that. So Peter goes in, and he kind of goes off and sits in the corner, and he's looking around, and he's thinking back to when he was a young man, right? And he used to go to these dances, and he used to drink and and dance and do all of this. And it says that he, right as he came to within himself, he said, I'm going to ask the owner of this house if I can preach to these people tomorrow. I guess it was Saturday night. He said right when he came to that kind of realization internally, a young woman approached him, said it was a, a redheaded woman, and asked him if he'd like to go dance. And he said, you know, again, I told you guys, he, he was very wit- witty, very uh, creative, right? And he said, you know, he got an idea. So he accepted her invitation to go out and dance. And he said all the eyes of everyone were kind of on him as he was holding her arm and they were walking to the dance floor. And, you know, he said, I'm sure most of them were thinking, oh, how nice this, you know, the young lady is, is reached out to the stranger. And he gets to the middle and the guy's playing a fiddler. The guy's playing the fiddle. And he asked the fiddler, he said, can you stop for a minute? So the guy stops. And Peter says, it's been a long time since I've done this or anything of the sort. And I'd like to ask God's blessing upon it. And he said, everyone just kind of looked at him. He said, I'd like to ask God's blessing upon this young woman that asked me to dance. And all you kind people for allowing me to join you. And he said at that, he dropped to his knees, still holding the young lady's hand. And he said she tried to pull away from him, but he had a hold of her. And he said he started crying out to God and praying an earnest prayer and asking them to to move in this place. And uh, he said all of a sudden, the people start, start weeping. And they start falling to the ground. And the girl that had asked him to pray 
is now laying on the ground next to him, crying uncontrollably. And uh, everyone that was there, that were that was there for the dance, uh, you know, got convicted by the Holy Spirit, and and they all gave their lives to the Lord that night. And he had a revival service that whole night. And then um, they set that up as a one of the Methodist churches. That house became basically a church. And uh, it said that many of the young men that were there at the dance that night actually became Methodist preachers. So again, guys, you're living your life the right way. You're honoring God. You're going to bring the light with you into the dark places, and you're going to see the change in the world around you. I thought it was interesting. Um, He ran for political office a couple times. He actually was elected to the Illinois General Assembly twice. So that's like the state congress. Um, And he actually, one of the people he beat out in 1832 for the General Assembly seat was Abraham Lincoln. So, I mean, look at this man's life. He's, he's interacted with Andrew Jackson, President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon religion. I mean, God set up divine appointments all through, through this man's life. And, uh, him and him and Lincoln were a little bit like this at each other. It said they both were very strong believers in abolishing slavery, and they were both Christians, but that's about where their uh, similarities in, in ended. And if you think about it, you know, Abraham Lincoln was uh, was a very cerebral man, and he was a, uh, a very polished kind of uh, a politician type guy. And then Peter Cartwright was a little bit more of your backwoods, in-your-face country boy, but that uh, was very smart, but not not um, not educated smart. He was wor- he was worldly smart, street smarts, but back in the day, maybe farm smarts. I don't know what you call it back then. <laughs> um, and then, guys, finally, I want to talk a little bit. You know, I said he was a circuit rider for nearly 70 years. And, you know, that when you live a life like that, that's not an easy life. I mean, that that's a life that's full of hardships. I said several times Cartwright would go, you know, multiple days and up to a week without food. And one time after being on riding the circuit trail for over three years, uh, he returned home. He only had six cents left in his pocket. And, it, and that evidently was borrowed money that he borrowed from someone else to get home so um you know these people that that went out and lived this lifestyle um they gave up a lot you know and it said a lot of times their families had to support them they might only make like 30 to 50 dollars a year um so a lot of times they depended on others to they said a lot of times their family would give them a horse and a saddle at one point he said his clothes had been patched so many times that you couldn't tell what the original clothing article had actually been because there were more patches left than there were actual clothing and yet this man in doing this for 70 years preached over 15,000 sermons and saw at least at least 10,000 conversions to Christ under his ministry and uh, and again, guys, a lot of times he wasn't preaching to huge numbers of people. So a lot of these conversions were, were going to be, you know, two or three people here or ten people there or, you know, 15 or 20 there. Um, you know, in that 70 years of living your life that way and, and, and really being submitted to the Lord. And probably the biggest thing, guys, the... The American frontier, the you know Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio and Illinois, um, when people first started moving into it, we were we're kind of founded as a Christian nation. But these were the people that didn't fit that society, so they moved out here. These were people that were a lot of times were thieves. They were um, 
as we learned earlier, different universalist, deist, atheist. Um, he went into what was a kind of a dark place, and he he brought the message of Christ, and he brought the good news, and he brought you know the story that Jesus, or he brought the message that Jesus saved you, and that your sins can be forgiven. And you know, what if these men hadn't brought that to that part of the country? I mean, that that was the expansion of America, and they changed it. Francis Asbury and, and guys, uh, McC- Pastor McCready, and, and guys like Peter Cartwright, they brought that message a lot of times to people that didn't necessarily want to hear it and then depended on God to move in power to to bring forth that message. And last thing, guys, I'm going to close with is the scripture, Acts 20 and 24. And it really just talks about staying the course and making sure that you keep yourself uh, in line with what God wants. It says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And guys, as we go into this next season, right? And and I believe we've got great things ahead of us. And I believe that revival is coming again to America. And I believe that River of Life is going to be a part of that. And we're going to see that. Um, we're going to face things like Peter Cartwright faced. Maybe not maybe not the same things, right? Because that's 200 years ago. But we're still, we're going to face uh, opposition from the world and from sinners who are just going to mock us and are not going to like us. We're going to face opposition from the New Age and the Muslim religions and Buddhists and Hindus and any other religion or in the uh, Mormons and any anything that's a cult that's not true Christianity, they're going to come against it. And then we're going to face opposition from the, the the religious people of today that that are more interested in keeping everything status quo than they are of seeing God move. And we have to set it within ourselves that our only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task that Jesus gave us. And we're going to do that by having strong character, by living our life the way we're supposed to. And when we do that, we're going to affect the world around us. We're going to bring that light into the darkness. And it's it's exciting for me because I get to go out with you guys on Friday nights. And I get or you know, I get to go watch you witness, and I get to see how you live your lives. I get to see how you talk to people after we leave here on Saturday nights. And and it's exciting for me because I I see you living the way that, that in a way that pleases the Lord. And you know, we're all being sanctified daily, right? And and there's there's areas for us that the Lord is continually working on us, but we're going the way He wants us to go. And and I know that as a church we're getting to where um, we're going to testify the good news of God's grace to a, a large group of people to uh, to the harvest that's before us and, and that's exciting. So um, with that, I think uh, I'm going to close out and hand it back over to Pastor. So.